Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Does It Swashbuckle, uh, the show where me and my co-host Jack Richardson explore adventure movies from the past and present. As this is our 12th episode, which also happens to be our one year anniversary, we thought we might um, go back to one of our favourite guests to talk about one of, if not the biggest adventure movies of all time. With that being said, please welcome back. B. Copeland, the lovely B. Copeland, otherwise known as Shakespeare. Oh, you guys are going to make me blush. Yeah, so with B. coming back, we thought it was high time we went for one of the absolute giants of the genre. We are, of course, talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. Released in 1981 and directed by Steven Spielberg, Raiders was the result of a collaboration between Spielberg and George Lucas, who obviously is best known as the creator of Star Wars. Uh, Lucas initially conceived the character as a tribute to the adventure serials of the 1930s, but he chose to put it on the back burner to focus on making his epic space opera, which was obviously a terrible choice and one that I'm sure he regretted. Anyway, when that proved to be a massive success, he returned to the idea and he recruited Spielberg to direct. At the time, Spielberg had really been interested in directing a Bond movie for a few years, but he'd never been given the opportunity. So he was really keen to um, take the chance to create a rival action franchise. Anyway, as I'm sure you already know, Raiders turned out to be almost as successful as Star Wars, earning $399, $390 million off a budget of $20 million, uh, becoming an iconic part of pop culture and spawning three sequels with another one on the way. Uh, before we get into its legacy, let's go back to the beginning. So I want to start off by asking you, if you had previous experiences of this film and what stood out watching it this time around. I mean, it's one of those ones that I think like a lot of early movies was just on TV, like all the time when I was a kid. Um, But it was also one of those ones that my dad owned on DVD. Um, So yeah, I've been around this movie for quite some time. Um, And I remember kind of liking it. Um, but revisiting it, it was just really good vibes. Like I found myself like enjoying it a lot more than I remember enjoying it, which is always a nice feeling. How about you, Jack? It's so difficult to tell with movies like this, especially this franchise, because they're so often on TV, and they were when I was a kid. And so I've seen little bits from each of them, but I don't know which is from which movie. I think I've like every Indiana Jones, or all of like the first like three Indiana Jones films are like one movie in my child's brain. Um, and so it was interesting actually watching this as an adult, because it might be the first time that I've actually just watched this movie and figured out what actually happens in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because I think the actual first Indiana Jones movie that I watched was Crystal Skull, which is not a very good moving lesson i didn't come on here so that we could slander a crystal skull i won't have that <laughs> uh, right okay anyway uh let's not get into that just yet um yeah i kind of i found it weird because i've obviously as you say it's been on tv so much obviously it's right on my street um and i loved it as a kid kept on loving it um but i did find that when i was trying to think about things critically there were some problematic elements that did pop out to me. But we're going to get into those, as always, um, later. But I did want to start with 
why do you think this film proved so iconic and successful? To be honest, I was thinking about this today, and I still don't know. It's actually still not related to the quality of this movie, but it's actually really surprising to me that this movie in this time period was as successful as it was because as you mentioned it is a real throwback to the kind of early early serial adventures of like the 30s and the 40s it's surprising to me that this movie resonated with the audience that in the way that it did and actually i think it was a surprise to people at the time and the producers of the movie at the time you know this is a very kind of old-fashioned movie um so on the one hand i'm kind of surprised that it resonated in the way that it did but on the other hand You've also got a lot of other kind of action blockbusters at the time that are centered around masculinity and that kind of true male hero icon, which I think was a big thing, particularly in American pop culture at the time. So from that perspective, I do understand why this movie is, was as successful as it was at the time. And I think it's only become more iconic and more celebrated as the years have progressed. I think the movie itself might actually be like a 6 or a 7 out of 10 but I think what actually properly elevates this movie is John Williams' score like John Williams does not freaking miss ever and it actually stunned me re-watching it how little he actually uses the main Indiana Jones theme like you don't properly fully hear that theme in its entirety pretty much until like the final battle in front of the plane. Um, but he chooses the way that he does it really well. You know, there's a couple of like the bit right at the beginning where he's running across the plane, um, as in plane of grass, not new. And um he's got like the little plinky motion going on the piano, which just suits it. Like John Williams is very good at finding the plot beat. And adapting the music to that plot beat. And I think that, like, because when I do think of Indiana Jones, one of the first things I do think of is the score. So. Yeah, I think I personally feel that maybe six or seven is a bit harsh. I think it is at least an eight, um, if not more. I think another reason is that just you can tell everyone bought the A game from the actors to the effects people. Um, And one thing I did really want to talk about is um, the stunt team. Some of the, I think this is, has some of the best set pieces in all of film. There's a particular bit where it goes from the plane fight that you mentioned with just some random German dude who's super into boxing, deciding that rather than shooting Indy, he's just going to have a fight, which delightful. Um, and then it goes from that into the truck chase, and which is just so iconic. Um, and Vic Armstrong in particular, absolute legend of the industry. Um, he's played, he's doubled for Bond, Superman, and Indiana Jones. He um, did the iconic being dragged behind the truck sequence here. I think you've just got to give huge props to them um, for practically making the franchise what it is. Harrison Ford apparently once said that to Vic Armstrong that if he learned how to talk, Harrison Ford would be in deep trouble. And also, yeah, the effects, like the bit at the end where they open the arc and the Nazis' fates, faces melt, just brilliant. And of course, Spielberg, just brilliant as always. Also, that um, the end scene with the 
face melting Nazis is such a Jumanji throwback to things that were far more uh, terrifying and scary. Uh, looking back at them as an adult, I was not uh, ready or expecting just how graphic they go with the face melting. I don't think I've ever seen that scene before. Because that movie, when it was originally released, Raiders, I think they released it as a PG. I'm pretty sure this went out as a family film. Yeah, you can't see the shock on Jack's face, but let me tell you, it's there. And I think about that a lot because there is quite a bit of, not like violence, but like, there is blood quite a lot throughout the plot of this movie. Like, and then you get to the face melting and it's full practical effects, which are stunning i still all these years later i'm like this is just magic this is the magic and industrial light and magic and yeah even as a 25 year old watching it now i'm like uh no i could i could skip this bit actually like this class is a horror movie right that's well, definitely the thing that is so interesting about if you compare like this to like maybe a kind of modern blockbuster like a marvel movie um, is that it's not even necessarily that like the level of violence is different, but as you mentioned, it's like almost the consequences of that violence are much more portrayed in Indiana Jones. Part of that is because they're meant to be like regular people, but still, like in regular action movies nowadays, for like a kind of similar family audience, you'll see characters being violent, and like maybe occasionally you'll see like some cuts or scratches and maybe a little bit of blood. But you don't really get to see like the effects of it, whereas you know if somebody disintegrates, they'll just disintegrate. But in this movie, it's like no, you're gonna you're gonna watch them melt, you're gonna see blood, you're gonna see like the actual effects of the violence, which almost make it feel more visceral than maybe it would otherwise. I think just adding on to that, um, the one thing that I remember Chris Pine always said about Harrison Ford was that he knew how to take a punch on screen. And I think that does really sum up a big part of Indy's appeal, is that he's rarely the best fighter in any scenario. Mostly his ability is just to get punched in the face a lot and keep going, which I think makes for a far more interesting dynamic than, as you say, modern Marvel movies, where so often it's the hero is kind of this all-powerful god who can barely bleed. It's very similar to, like, John McClane and Die Hard. Like, John McClane and Indiana are both... They're just regular guys. Like, they show Indiana at his teaching job, and he takes the punches, and you see the results of those punches. There are certain scenes towards the end of this movie where Indiana just looks very, very tired, and that's relatable, because even watching him, I'm like, oof, I'm out of breath. It's not the years, honey, it's the mileage. <laughs> Obviously, as we've said, there's a there's a huge amount to love here, um, from the performances to the effects to the action. Um, but I did want to, I'm sure everyone already knows about that, I did want to delve into some of the aspects that maybe haven't aged so well. So one of the subplots that does stand out a little concerningly is the idea, it's heavily implied that... Um, Indy first had an affair with Marion when she was underage. And it turns out that if you look into the making of it, that they actually had a talk about what age she should be. And George Lucas decided that 15 was the correct age, as it was not quite 12, so not sort of 
viscerally paedophilia, but he decided that it wasn't interesting if she was 16 or 17. So I wanted to talk to you about why you thought that was so key to the story and whether it actually added anything or whether it makes the film significantly worse. I mean, it's a bit of an oof, that's that's for sure. Um, and one of the most interesting aspects of that is because Marion's dad, Professor Ravenwood, is mentioned. And as far as we're aware, I think the movie makes it pretty clear that he is no longer with us and that he and Indy had this massive falling out. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that would that would do it, you know? But also, he he can just be dead. Like that's fine. You don't. I don't actually know if the uh, thing adds anything really, and it's especially frustrating looking back because Marion just doesn't appear again for like two, three movies. So they just went, yeah, we're gonna have the love interest underage when they had their original affair come back and then just never speak about it again and i do wonder if that was partly because of this like i've not looked into the making properly of the sequels but i do wonder if a small part of the reason why they didn't bring marion back was someone somewhere went hey george bestie uh not great look yeah i think it's potentially part of it but i think a lot of the real reason for that is the same reason why Bond girls change every movie, and it's because, pretty much every movie, and it's because for a lot of the filmmakers who are making this, for a lot of the kind of logic behind these movies, the female characters are interchangeable because they don't really have any personality goals, true history or motivation. They just exist as like so, sometimes they're feisty, they're feisty, they may be a bit sassy, but they. <laughs> They don't have, they're not real characters in the way that the male characters are. If uh, there was a new Indiana Jones movie and Indiana Jones was a different person, um, people would notice and care. I think if there was another one where the, the female love interest is different, I don't think anybody pays attention because ultimately these films are not invested in these characters, which is frustrating and annoying. But yeah, I do think that uh it just adds to this general feeling that this movie is like really toxically masculine in a lot of the ways that it uh looks at things um i do want to say though uh, i don't think any of us believe that that is the fault of karen allen who plays marion i think she gives a great performance maybe she does kind of fall into that oh she's feisty sassy stereotype um but i do think that if you remove the really concerning parts, her and Ford do have really good chemistry together and their relationship does feel reasonably believable, at least when you compare it to kind of Bond or um, other sort of similar franchises. Even like the discussion that she's having with Jonas's arch enemy Balak when they're having that little meal, it's genuinely quite tense and I majority of that is down to the characters' performances. Um, it is genuinely like a creepy little scene. Because, hey, Balok doesn't need to be putting her in that very revealing dress. That's... Don't do that, my guy. But then once she has the dress on, she's very coy about the fact that she's planning to just stab him halfway through the meal. 
and they get really drunk and it becomes really uncomfortable, but like in a really good way that the plot intended. And I certainly think if you had any other actress that wasn't as good as she is, that scene just wouldn't carry across as well. Yeah, I mean, Karen Allen has literally talked about this in interviews where like she was not super happy that her character was sometimes defined especially by her relationship with men as opposed to kind of her own relationship with like the plot and the arc but has also said that she's received a lot of kind of she received a lot of positive feedback from young women and girls who watched this movie at the time where like the character portrayals obviously as we've talked about like pretty concerning and um even within that you're still seeing a female character that at least is like getting to fight, you know, getting to like participate as part of the action. And so like, while it is like a, definitely a flawed character, I guess you really can't discount like the effect that that will have had on people watching it at the time. I also just want to say, I absolutely love her character intro with the drinking game she's playing. <laughs> it's just an absolute iconic one that sets up a character so well. Um, and yeah, just works the rest of the movie. Um, and B, just jumping off what you were saying about that scene with Belloc, I also just wanted to give little props to Paul Freeman, who plays him. Because Belloc is, the more I watch it, the more I love Belloc, the sleazy, skeevy little fuck that he is. He's it's so really funny watching it, and you're like, ah, yes, the greatest villain, educated white men. <laughs> He's so smarmy. And he's kind of charming, but kind of just greasy. And he looks amazing. I know Jack likes to mention a particular um, item of clothing that they mentioned, but I'm just going to say his linen suit in Cairo is an absolute look with the Panama hat. I just love him. And his little relationship with Marion is... It's... I don't know. It's just really fascinating. Um... And you can see them kind of playing each other and they both kind of accept that they're playing each other, which is really interesting to watch. Yeah, I do think um, something that is, well, maybe this is everybody else's fully kind of grapple with this in their mind and it's just me. Uh, But I do think that we uh, sometimes forget how important like the placement of this movie in like the in universe history is where like this movie is like set in the 30s um and i think that's something that at least i often forget and it plays into a lot of the relationship commentary between this movie and like topic of colonialism um where like this movie is taking place during a time where most colonial territories around the world were still colonial territories that had not been like the kind of uh, decolonization movement yet and you can especially see that in like the uh, scenes in Egypt there's a really uh, telling line I think when Marion gets kidnapped um, in like the little uh, I can't, it's almost like a pot um, and you hear her say I'm an American and I think that there's something about that that is so interesting because it is like reinforcing this idea that she thinks that that affords her some kind of like luxury in another country which is still something that we see i don't know it's just like it's stuff like that where i think a lot of people criticize this movie as being like a very kind of colonial movie and i do get that i also think it's little things like that where i'm like it's not perfect there's a lot of problems that it has i think sometimes it's 
commenting on it and not necessarily just depicting it. Maybe that's me giving it too much more credit than it deserves, but I don't know. I don't know what you both think. Um, so yeah, now that you mentioned it, I did want to talk, because obviously, as we've said, this is a modernization of the kind of adventure serials of the 1930s. Um, but to what extent do you think it's successful at updating those kind of racial caricatures that plagued the early stories? It does have some the aboriginals right at the very start and they are definitely portrayed like you'd expect them to be um i don't think they were particularly treated very well on set either if i recall re-watching it you did kind of feel like they kind of fit into a number of select stereotypes um so as you've said sort of there's a fairly stereotypical um portrayal of kind of this um native tribe who are completely cut off from the world um and then immediately trust anyone who seems to speak their language um and then there's kind of the the lovable sidekick um characters obviously most obviously we love salah um, played by John Rhys-Davis um, but I question the extent to which he kind of plays into that and then you kind of have the greedy other people so Alfred Molina is would be a prime example of that I don't know I did feel like it did occasionally it's certainly not as bad as the next film in the franchise which is Haw. I really like it, but it's got so many problems on that front. Um, yeah. But yeah, I do think that this one is also, it doesn't up modernize it as much as you'd hope it could. But then it was the 80s, so maybe they just weren't thinking about it that much. Yeah, I think uh, the worldview kind of perpetuated by this movie is a very specific type of dehumanization of cultures that aren't kind of European or uh, American uh, colonialist, which is this idea that other cultures don't somehow have the same legitimacy or agency over their own history and culture that like, uh, that kind of like privileged global cultures do. And you see that in the way that um, Indiana Jones doesn't seem to feel any kind of remorse or, moral difficulty with taking items from other cultures that don't belong to him which is a trope that we see a lot of times with archaeologists both uh in history and also particularly in fiction i'm thinking of uncharted as well um and it is like this complicated idea of like are you an archaeologist or are you a looter because that doesn't actually belong to you that belongs to another kind of country another culture that you don't belong to that you can't just take that and the movie the movie to its credit does have some moments where it kind of discusses is indiana jones really that different from the villains is it just because he's not a nazi is that like the only uh difference um but it doesn't maybe tackle it in a way that kind of fully answers the question i guess because that he pulls out a we're not so different you and i speech but it's actually the convincing because they are effectively doing the same thing and whilst Indy may try to do it in a more respectful way he's kind of he's not questioning the inherent logic behind oh we need to put these 
artifacts from other cultures in American museums. And he, he just thinks that's fine. Um, and yeah, I do think it's interesting because it's kind of, you can see how they kind of took the idea of this classic 30s adventure hero. So I'm thinking kind of Doc Savage characters like that and tried to make them a bit more complicated. But I think especially with the longer the franchise has gone on, the more they've kind of forgotten that and he becomes viewed as more of a straight up hero, which does become more problematic as you, because you then interrogate the ideas behind what he's doing much less. Because even by the end of the movie, once, you know, the Ark of the Covenant has been located and taken by the government, Indy's issue isn't, we took it out of their country, it's, we could have learned so much from this arc if we'd just taken the time to study it. And that's not really the point, Indiana. It's not yours to study. Although there is a lot of, I think, actual history about the Ark of the Covenant itself in that opening scene with the government officials right up until the point, I think, where it stops being 100% accurate. But the stuff that they say about it from, you know, the Hebrew Bible and stuff, from as far as I can tell, sounds fairly accurate. I wasn't expecting to be educated by an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, it's also the fact that he's like, honestly, I know you're not meant to be on the government side of this, but they've just found what is proven to be a weapon of mass destruction and Indy's like, ah, you should give it to these bumbling scholars who dig up ancient ruins. Yes, we are the most qualified people to deal with this. Honestly, sticking it in the warehouse. And again, just an absolutely iconic ending, I think deserves it for being, just adding that slight hint of ambiguity onto an otherwise fairly standard blockbuster. Um, But yeah, honestly, the government guys seem to make the right call there. Good casting, by the way, as well. I mean, all around, uh, but specifically with the government agent officials, because they look and sound like officials, but one of them is played by the guy who plays Porkins in Star Wars, because Lucas and Spielberg, it looks like just can't help but share each other's resources. I think it's really cute, the way that they just like, each other's stuff crops up in each other's movies. Like, there's an R2-D2 and C-3PO hieroglyph hidden in Raiders somewhere. I couldn't find it this time around, but I'm sure it's there, because it's in the Lego set that they released for the movie. I have issues with George Lucas as a filmmaker rather than as a person so much. Um, He seems like a reasonably nice bloke, but they do have a very cute thing going on. I want to talk about possibly the greatest or one of the greatest documentaries that I've ever seen, which is called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. So it's these three lads, must have been about nine, ten years old at the time that Raiders came out, and they decided they were going to recreate the entire film, frame for frame, shot for shot, during their summer holidays. And... They achieved it, bar the plane sequence. So the documentary explores their journey through making it originally, and then them trying to get the plane sequence shot. And it's absolutely staggering watching them sort of 
form friendships and like relationships and the way it breaks down and the way it builds back up. But it also gives so much more of an appreciation, I think, for the film itself and the way it was crafted. Because these kids literally nearly died almost every single day that they were filming this. Because it's not a safe movie to make. And watching the documentary, you're like, okay, they're all fine. They seem to have made it without scars. But then you hear about the guy that gets set on fire in Marion's pub. Yes, they just straight up set a man on fire in their basement. And the boulder scene, the boulder scene, I think they made like a huge paper mache boulder. And that is definitely a health hazard. They replicated the truck stunt where Indiana Jones is hanging off the back of the truck because, of course, they shot shot for shot. And that is literally shot for shot. But even having this truck go at 10, 15 miles per hour, that's probably not just dangerous. It's probably slightly illegal. And watching them make this film, it's difficult... A, not to be concerned for their safety, but B, not to root for them, because you hear all about it, and they get to the end of production and they haven't done the plane sequence, because it's arguably the most dangerous sequence in the film, and you just, you're so bummed that they didn't get to do it the first time round, and it's astounding. They have their own website dedicated to the making of the documentary as well, so the documentary is based on the book that one of them wrote and it is straight up not just one of the best documentaries I've ever seen but probably one of the best things that I've ever seen period the way it crafts that story together just it appreciates the art form it's so good I will have to give it a watch I think yeah it's just it's a tribute to how good just everyone was working in this and I know we've talked about Spielberg before, but the last time we kind of discussed him, we were kind of saying that it didn't work out so well with Hook. But this is just Spielberg in his absolute pomp. And I don't think there's an action director like him out there. I cannot think of anyone as good when he's in his prime. And you just have to look at, say, The Adventures of Tintin, which kind of received a fairly meh um response when it first came out including for myself but the more I've gone back the more I love it and I love what he does and the animated thing just gives him so much more space to play without you know endangering lives which you know not not always a bad thing that's the thing about Raiders of the Lost Ark is it's a summer blockbuster and it it feels like it and it earns that title you know all of the Marvel movies that come out tend to get slapped with the word blockbuster, but Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of those ones that earns that title. I was thinking about it because I've recently watched a couple of Spielberg's other movies, Jaws and E.T. at the cinema, and you really appreciate them so much more when they're on a large screen and when the story and the sound is enveloping you. And I think Spielberg has such a great way of filling a frame and capturing a shot. You know, there's that entire subplot throughout Nope that's just come out and it's about capturing the perfect shot. But 
so many of Spielberg's movies feel like they have several shots that could be classified as that. Even the ending for Raiders, where it's just looking down at the warehouse, that's not just one of Indiana Jones's most iconic shots as a franchise. I think it's possibly one of the most iconic shots in cinema. The scene where they're actually physically digging up the Ark of the Covenant against the sunset behind them, and it's all just shadows. It's The cinematography just does not get enough praise. I have two things to respond to that. First of all, absolutely agree. The lighting in um, the scenes in Marion's bar is just drop-dead gorgeous. It's framed so well, as is there's a particularly gorgeous scene where um, Indy turns away from the truck exploding and wanders back, and it's just oh, it's so perfectly held. Um, but I also do want to point out that about that shot of them digging as the sun sets, Indy's not doing the digging. He's letting the Arabic laborers do it, which, again, does not feel like it's aged well. Yeah, no, bit of an oof there, Indiana, honestly. And he, like, takes the time to put his hat on and everything. What a dick. (laughs) He kind of is, though. Like, Indiana is just the everyman, as the everyman would have been in 1983, which means that he comes with all of the problems of a 1983 everyman. And the other aspect of this movie that doesn't get enough praise either is... Indiana's colleague at the college. Someone, please. Marcus! Thank you. Yes, Marcus. How could you forget Marcus? Played by Denel Elliott. I've got a bad memory, apparently. Yeah, Marcus is just, he's not in the movie for overly long, but you absolutely feel the weight of his presence in everything that he's in. It really feels like he cares about archaeology and cares about Indiana to the extent that I think you see him in the next couple of movies, but then obviously the actor himself had passed away by the time they did Crystal. And there's just this beautiful little scene of Indiana looking over a portrait of him. And because of Raiders and the history that they share, even just in their small amounts of screen time, you really feel that scene. I think uh, some people don't like the third Indiana Jones movie, but I think it's ch- he gives both Salah and Marcus a chance to come back and shine, um, as they rightfully should, and I think that is one of the reasons that I do love that movie. I mean, I prefer Last Crusade to Temple of Doom. Let's have that conversation sometime. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah. I kind of, I don't know, I... I always loved Temple of Doom as the kid, but the more I think about it now, it is really quite hard to defend in many ways. As always, we do have to ask, does it swashbuckle? B? I think it absolutely does. It's If we're giving it out of five swashbuckles, I think on terms of pure swashbuckling, maybe 4.5. It's It's almost there, but it's not perfect. So, Jack, does it swashbuckle? Um, this movie, probably more than any other that I think that we've watched, is like the perfect encapsulation of like the adventure genre and swashbuckling, just as a kind of like way of telling a story. Um, 
And I think, I'm, I'm not the first person to have pointed this out, but I think that so much of these movies and this kind of genre relies on a personal nostalgia for the work and also a kind of cultural historical nostalgia for like an age in which we, we being the Western world, were great. And I think that your or your, your kind of opinion on how it resonates with you depends on which perspective of the nostalgia you're coming from and kind of how it's interpreted by you. And so for something like this, I'm I'm very I'm very torn. I think as a like as a swashbuckle as a swashbuckling kind of movie, it's like a five. This to me is like the epitome of the genre. As like a kind of cultural thing, I think it is a really interesting jumping off point for discussion. Yes, so swashbuckling, I'd absolutely give it a five. And just as a movie in general, I think I'd obviously. Um, but I do think it's a good point that it's kind of got everything that's great and everything that is kind of problematic about the genre perfectly encapsulated in this one film. Um, but I think, if anything, one thing I think we should be grateful for is that it led to so many other adventure movies. So one movie that we haven't talked about yet, but I think has been on the cards for a while, is The Mummy. And you can see the inspiration there from Indiana Jones, clear yeah. as day. And it did lead to a revival of this genre, which obviously I'm never going to complain about. Um, so yeah, it's definitely got some things that you, I think you need to... In it's got some messages you need to interrogate yourself and you and that about ends things for this episode thank you so much b for appearing with us as always love having you on hope to have you on again soon uh you can find all of her stuff at at shakespeare on twitter lots of exciting stuff there so make sure to check it out and nay and i want to give a really big thank you to all of our listeners the last year has been so great thank you so much for listening to us we've got loads of exciting episodes coming your way so make sure you follow our twitter you can find the link in our bio and also make sure that you subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app thanks so much and see you again